you would take your Bibles, please, and open up to Genesis chapter 1. We've been working through Genesis chapter 1 and the creation week. Uh, last week, we uh, looked in particular at the first three days and began to, to think about the fact that in Genesis 1, we not, we not only see the truth that God creates, but we also see some truths about how God creates. That God does tell us that in Genesis 1, not just saying, I'm the creator, but this is how I did it. A few weeks back, we uh, considered the fact that uh, Genesis 1 is describing a, a regular week, normal days, a normal seven-day week period, and that's the best way to understand what's being said here. I mentioned there's a third element that often comes up in discussions about biblical creationism, and that is how old is the earth? And we're, we'll touch on that this evening. We'll probably spend a little more time on that in a, in a future week as well. I've avoided, and I generally avoid the term young earth creationism, uh, not because I think it's wrong, uh, but because I, I like biblical creationism. I understand in some ways that kind of uh, robs the argument uh, because other people might be claiming to be biblical. Uh, but to me, young earth creationism is, is a misnomer because I think thousands of years is a long time. Uh, it's really only young compared to how old people say the earth is outside of that. Right? So if you're comparing thousands of years to billions of years, then it certainly seems very young. Right? But, but age is relative. We all understand that and appreciate that, right? And so I think the earth is much older than I am and much older than most things we ever see. Um, but we are going to deal a little bit with the question of how old is the earth as we work through the second four days of the creation week. And in the second four days... Uh, we find God taking the rooms that he has built in the first three days in which he formed the world and made it inhabitable, and now he begins to fill it. He actually makes the earth inhabited in these next three days. So if you would, we'll start reading in uh, chapter 1 and verse 14 of Genesis 1. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. A fourth day. Day four gets uh, quite a bit of attention in the creation week. Uh, other than day six, it gets the most words given to it, the, the most attention given to it. I think there's probably some reason for that. And that's because in many uh, cultures, in many nations and peoples around Israel, uh, what, central to their worship was worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. They believed, can you imagine, they would believe that the stars would actually determine their destiny? Of course we believe that because people believe that today. What are you? I'm a Libra. And so that tells me I'm this. Why? Because the stars were in this alignment when I was born. Or I'm going to open the paper and see what the horoscope is today. That this is an an ancient uh, belief system. Uh, People look to the stars to tell them what their fate would be, what their destiny would be, and they worship the sun and they worship the moon. And in this passage, we see God undermining that very system. 
Um, in fact, he never even uses the word sun and moon. He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. And that might be because he's wanting to kind of undermine the very belief system that these are significant beings in themselves. I think there's also potentially a reason why he created light on day one and waited to day four to create the sun. To point to the fact that God doesn't need the sun to create light and heat and warmth. God's perfectly capable of doing that himself. He, he's the one who made the sun, having the capability of doing these things. And we certainly see in this passage, they aren't the ones ruling over the earth. They're actually serving the earth. They have a role. And in some ways, the role they have is not that significant. Now, if you study science, you realize the sun and the moon do a lot more than what's described here. But here, it's pretty basic. They're just kind of there to mark things. We actually find three things that it's described they're called to do. In verse 15 and verse 17, they're there to be lights. And so what are they doing? Well, they provide light. Secondly, they divide the day and the night, the light and the darkness, or they govern these things. Uh, We find that in verse 14 and 16, uh, to separate the day from the night. And 16, uh, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And verse 18, to govern the day and night and to separate the light from the darkness. And I don't know for sure why, uh, what the word govern or rule means. I think probably the best way to understand it is in a sense that they're kind of sitting up above these things. When it's day, you look up and what do you see? Oh, it's the sun. It's night and you look up and what do you see? Oh, it's the moon. And so it's kind of sitting over top of the day. It's sitting over top of the night. And that way it's governing or ruling it. And I say that because it doesn't seem that in scripture there's any real authority given to the sun or moon in these things. And so I think it's just kind of pointing to its place in, in, in the, the uh, geography of it, if I can say it that way. It, it, that's, it's up above the day and up above the night and therefore governing and ruling in this way. But then there's a third function that's given, and we see that in verse 14, that they are for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, I, I don't think signs there is the kind of astrological signs that we talk about. In part because elsewhere in scripture, I think it would point against that kind of view. And really, the the kind of signs that we see the stars giving are signs like Psalm 8. When I consider the stars, the the things you've made, what am I, I'm humbled, I look at your majesty. Or Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sun is testifying this as he he comes out from his uh, chamber like a bridegroom. And so there are signs pointing to something beyond themselves. There are signs pointing to God himself. Additionally, you might see Matthew 16 points to the red sky at night or at morning being an evidence of weather. And so in some ways, they might point to weather. Or they are used as signs for prophecy or judgment. God sets a rainbow in the sky as a sign. One day, he's going to darken the sun and the moon and the stars are no longer going to shine as in preparation for the day of the Lord. And so in that way, they will be a sign for God's coming judgment. They're secondly called there that they function for seasons. And I think this is uh, kind of like what we just went through. Uh, we just had, you know, the autumnal 
um, not equinox, what's the solstice? What, what's the in-between ones? Someone knows, right? Equinox, is it? Okay, equinox. Um, yeah, because the summer's, summer and winter is the solstice, right? All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. White. <laughs> um, so uh, we, that's the seasons. It's marking the, our calendar, our uh, events, festivals, uh, serves as holy days within the life of the nation of Israel. And then more broadly, just time, passage of time, days and years is the third thing that's prescribed to do. And it still does that. We, we still mark time in light of the sun and in stars and things like that. And so they're serving the function that God set them up to serve. And in so doing, then God at the end of day four describes them as good. So then in verse 20, we come to day five. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. And on day five, we have the first instance of living creatures. Uh, and I think this gives us a little bit of an indication that from a biblical perspective, uh, plants are not living. Vegetation was created on day three. We now have living creatures being created here on day five. And in particular, we have uh, creatures of the sea and creatures of the sky. And I just wanted to bring a little bit of attention to verse 21, where it describes the great sea monsters. Uh, you might wonder what that is. I think that is something we see several times mentioned uh, in the Old Testament, sometimes connected to uh, uh, another word you might be familiar with, Leviathan. Uh, I think these are sea creatures that, again, in, in other cultures around, these kind of sea creatures were viewed as gods of some kind, uh, perhaps even dragons. This might be pointing to that kind of idea that we see that in a lot of different cultures, the belief in dragons. This kind of thing could be pointing to that. Just a couple of examples of this, uh, Psalm 74 Verses 13 and 14. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. Or Isaiah 27, 1. On that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And one of the things that this passage points to is the fact that this sea creature is not a problem at all to God. To the people of Moses' day, when they thought of these gigantic sea creatures, they rightly were terrified. And we see that described in Job 41. In Job 41, he, he asked Job, can you drag out Leviathan with a fish hook and press down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with a hook? And the answer is no. You can't control him. He's more powerful than you. He's greater than you are. And yet, verse 10, no one is so reckless that he dares to stir him. Well, who then is he who opposes me? If you can't deal with this creature that I made, what makes you think you can deal with me? And in fact, this great sea creature is not a God in himself. This great sea creature 
is there to serve and praise God. Psalm 148, 7, praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters, and all the ocean depths. And so even the most powerful, most intimidating creatures that people would look to, and they would begin to worship them instead of God, God points out, I made them. I spoke, and they came into existence. We find that he creates them after their kind. We saw that earlier in vegetation. Uh, that it seems in Genesis 1, there is, again, this kind of division. You have certain creatures that are within a certain kind, and there's others who are part of a different kind. And they're distinct from one another. They're not the same. Everything isn't ultimately just bleeding into each other. There are distinctions and divisions within God's created order. And he closes day five with his first word of blessing. God blessed them. How did he bless them? He blessed them by calling them to be fruitful and multiply. And here I think there's at least two truths we see. One is they could not be fruitful and multiply apart from God's blessing. I think we see that pretty consistently in the rest of Scripture. Offspring comes from the Lord. It's his blessing. And then tied in with that is offspring is a blessing. The ability to be fruitful and multiply is evidence of God's blessing. It is a kindness and favor from God. In verses 24 and 25, we're going to look at just the first part of day six, because in the rest of day six, we see the creation of mankind, and there's no way we could do that justice uh, this evening. So, so, Lord willing, next time we meet and and work through this, uh, we'll come back and discuss the creation of mankind. But in the first part of day six, verses 24 and 25, we find this. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things. Beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. We didn't point to this in the other days, but, but consistently we're seeing throughout the creation week, God says he's going to do it, and then what happens? It happens just the way he says. Exactly the way he lays it out. That's how it comes to pass. And it seems that there's three different categories of, of creatures here. We have cattle, and I think probably the best way to understand that would be domestic animals. Uh, perhaps farm animals. And then you have creeping things, uh, which I think would point to all the things that are pretty close to the ground. I think it could include, you know, mice and uh, lizards and um, snakes, all those kinds of things that are pretty close to the ground. Probably insects would fall into this category as well. And then beasts of the earth, and that's probably just more generically wild animals, uh, not domestic animals, farm animals, uh, but wild animals. Uh, that God creates here. And uh, we'll, again, Lord willing, touch more on this. We talked about the creation of man. But for now, I think it's at least helpful to note that in this passage, we begin to, to, to see a truth that pushes back against two errors. Uh, one error is the belief that animals are divine, uh, that there are holy cows, that you actually have creatures that are godlike, and therefore it would be uh, wrong to kill them. Uh, we'll certainly see as we go through the book of Genesis uh, that eventually God gives permission to people to eat animals, but even now we see these are not divine creatures. These are creatures that God has made. The second error really should flow out of the, the, 
common Darwinian evolutionary kind of perspective of our day. That animals are simply accidents. They're things that came here through a process of mutation and natural selection. And in that, there's really no inherent value to them. Now, what's interesting is animals in our day probably get more respect than humans in a lot of ways. You have discussions about animal rights. I remember several years ago, uh, there was a, a big a hullabaloo when uh, the Cincinnati Zoo had to put down their gorilla Harambe uh, because uh, the child had fallen into uh, his cage, and everyone was all upset. And really, from an evolutionary perspective, we should look at that and say, well, who cares? We're the better species. And so it's not really a big deal if a gorilla dies. And yet, from a biblical perspective, we recognize there is some value to animal life because they're also creatures that God has made. As you go through, you'll, you'll find in the Mosaic Law, for example, God giving instructions for how to, to care for animals. They're not on the level of humans, but they are creatures that deserve some level of care because they're creatures that God has made, that God has created. They are living beings. And so we see then God almost to the point of getting to his conclusion, to the climax in which he makes man. But up to this point, he's, he's filling the earth that he has made. And I want to take a little bit of time to, to think about a couple of questions related, as I said, to the age of the earth from this passage. One is a little bit of debate between how we should describe what we see here. Uh, you may have heard before that uh, the idea that God made things with an appearance of age. Uh, some biblical creationists argue that's not the best way to talk about it. We shouldn't talk about an appearance of age. Instead, we should talk about a functionally mature creation. Uh, the difference being, it's not just it looked old, uh, but it actually was made so that it could do whatever it was supposed to do. So we talked a little bit of this last week. The trees, when they were made on day three, were trees that had fruit. The animals and sea creatures, as they come, they're swimming, they're flying. They're, they're living and moving. They're themselves ready to begin multiplying and filling the earth. And so they're at the point in which they can themselves reproduce. And how old are they? Well, a day old. And so if you were to look and see, oh, this is a dog, you wouldn't think that dog was born today. You would think it looks older. That's the idea of appearance of age. But some people don't like that because they say it, it, it gives the impression that God is deceiving people. And so he didn't make things with an appearance of age. It's not as though uh, we'd have looked at it and actually said, oh, this is a, you know, a two-year-old dog or whatever. Um, but it's just a functionally mature dog. I, I personally don't have a major problem with the idea of appearance of age because what we're talking about here is a miraculous creation. And the example I, I've, I've liked to use is the wedding cana when Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. At that point in time, if someone came along and they said, oh, this is wine, then they would have think, begun to think scientifically, they would have said, well, wine comes from you know, grapes, and so someone must have grown some grapes and then uh, crushed those grapes and allowed it to ferment over time. And so then we would eventually, we would have wine, and that's where this all came from. And they would say, no, no, there was just water in here, and now it's wine. 
So in a sense, it had the appearance of age. Was God deceiving people? And the answer is, well, no, he was doing a miracle. And so if the earth was created with the appearance of age, is God deceiving us? The answer is, no, he told us exactly what he did. He said, I just made these things. And so I don't, I don't actually get all caught up with the, uh, the problem that this would be deceptive. But that is related to another question that comes up in this section. And that's the question of distant starlight. If you ever uh, studied young earth creationism, this might be something you've come up, uh, read about, or maybe you've thought about yourself in the past. And the point is this, the stars that we see are what we call millions and billions of light years away. And by light years, we mean the, how fast light can travel. It would take this many years for light to get from those stars here to earth. And so if you have a star that is a billion light years away, the question is, how is the light from that star here? Unless we've had a billion years go by, such that the light of that star could make its way a billion years through space and get to us now. So that's the, the problem of distant starlight. Uh, some questions that, that people have, or some, some potential answers that people have given to that. The first is God created these stars with light already on the way here. And so it's kind of halfway there, and then it's made its way uh, since then. Some people don't like this, in part because of what I said. They, they say it gives the idea that God was deceiving people in some kind of a way. Uh, I don't think that's a major issue. The, the one issue that does create a little bit of tension is we have uh, stars that have blown up into supernovas that are more than 10,000 years away. And so then it creates a little bit of a question if light's just been traveling for, let's say, 10,000 years, then it looked like that was a star, but it was never really a star because it was a supernova. So that creates a little bit of tension in some people. So that's the, the idea that, that light was kind of in transit is not a very popular view right now among young Earth creationists. Another view that's been put out is uh, what's called the speed of light decay. And so uh, that's basically saying light used to travel much faster than it does now. And over time, it slowed down. And so since the earth was created, it was really fast at the beginning, and then it slowly, slowly, slowly got slower and slower. Um, the, the tension with that is, as best as we can see, it doesn't seem that light is slowing down at all. And again, I confess this is outside my realm. I can't even remember if it's the autumnal equinox or solstice, right? So this, this science isn't my, my uh, forte. But... Um, my understanding from physicists is there are other constants that relate to the speed of light that then create tensions if the speed of light changes. So that's also not a view that's very widely held. There are three views I'm going to give you that are still commonly held among young earth creationists today. And I'll just tell you now, even if you didn't get these last, you don't get these next three, don't worry about it. I'm not going to quiz you next week. Um, but this may be helpful for some of you. So, so what are those three views? Well, one is, is basically the idea that the Earth was originally a center of a white hole, a white hole different from a black hole. A white hole is material shoots out from it. And so originally the Earth was the center, material shot out from it. And there is an understanding in science that within gravitational issues, 
there can be gravitational time dilation. So if this maybe is helpful for you, if you ever saw the movie Interstellar, and I'm not telling you, you need to watch it, but in that movie, one of the, spoiler alert, uh, there's a Earth, there's a planet they go to that once you get on the planet, gravitation is so hard that an hour up there, down there is like 10 years up on the spaceship outside it. And that whole idea is in light of a scientific theory that time travels differently in relationship to gravitational pull. So if the Earth is at the center, time has passed much more slowly here than it has everywhere else. And so it hasn't taken billions of our years for light to travel here because time was traveling much faster at the outer regions. And that is a plausible scientific explanation. A second explanation, if you thought that was confusing, um, second explanation, it ties in with Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, the, the best, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you what someone said when they said, in layman's terms, so that's us mostly, right? In layman's terms, think of it like this. You leave on a jet from New York at 1 p.m. and you land in L.A. at 1 p.m. But you might say, the flight took about five hours on the jet. Well, here's the difference. According to Einstein, when you approach the speed of light, time goes to zero. So if you rode on top of a light beam from a star that was billions of light years away from Earth, it took no time for you to get here. So that five-hour flight on a speed of light would be a no-hour flight. It was instantaneous. And it's tied in with the idea that we can't actually measure the speed of light one way because time is connected with the speed of light, and so we can only measure it two ways. And so it's basically saying it is possible to say uh, light travels at an infinite speed one way and slow the opposite. And since Earth is at the center, the light from stars travels to Earth instantaneously. So whereas we think, I mentioned earlier, that star that blew up into a supernova, people assume, well, that must have actually blown up into a supernova, you know, a million years ago. And this theory said, no, it blew up the moment we saw it. That when we saw it, that's when it blew up. Because light's coming to us instantaneously from these stars. And again, this is a scientifically plausible theory. My understanding is it's impossible to test it because, again, we can't test light traveling one way. The tension, I think, is it's the kind of thing where you're all like, man, I just, this does not make any sense to me. And so it isn't helpful for a lot of us in understanding the issue, but it seems to be a very plausible scientific explanation. The final one, and I actually am, would be most inclined to this. The final one is, is saying light in some ways would be understood similar to how vegetation was created on day three. If you look at chapter one and verse 11, you'll see, let the earth sprout vegetation. And I mentioned last week, it'd be kind of like a time-lapse in which you see a flower grow in a time-lapse camera, but there actually is no time-lapse. Just kind of happens right away. That that's the same way that light got to us. That God, in a sense, just shot the light to us. And, and the argument against this view is, well, in that case, we can't really learn anything from the science of it because it was a miracle. I'd say, well, I don't necessarily personally have a problem with that because creation is a miracle. And so I very well might have been miraculous in how God sent light to us. In the same way that there's no, so in a sense, there's no physical explanation. How did light get here? God just did it. 
well, how was Jesus born of a virgin? How do we explain that scientifically? And she says, there isn't one. It's a miracle. How did Jesus rise again from the dead? How do we explain that? He says, well, there is an explanation. He just did it. How did light get here? Well, there isn't a scientific explanation for it. God just made it get here. It was a miraculous work in what he did. Now, which of those views is right? The Lord knows. I don't. But I think it shows there are solid, plausible explanations for the fact that the earth doesn't need to be billions of years old in order to explain the fact that there are stars that are considered billions of light years away. Because that's a distance equation. It's actually not a time measurement. It's saying it's this far if light were to travel at this rate. It's actually not telling us how long it's there. It's just telling us how far away it is. Now, some truths like us to draw out from what we see in this passage. The first truth I think is tied in with what I just said. In a sense, we wouldn't know any of this unless God tells us this. That no one was there to see any of it. Adam's not been created yet. At this point in the creation week, there's no human. And when Adam comes into creation, he wouldn't know anything that happened before he got there. The only reason we know any of this is because God told us these things. And we have to believe what God has said because he was the only one who was there. A second truth. I, I used a, a musical a couple weeks ago. I'm going to use another musical. The sun will come out tomorrow. You can bet your bottom dollar, tomorrow there will be sun. And, and this passage tells us, in a sense, yeah, the sun will come out tomorrow. Why? Because God set the sun in place to govern the day and to be there for days and years and seasons. And so until he's done with that, the son's going to do that every day. But do you realize from an atheist's perspective, we actually can't say definitively the sun will come out tomorrow? Because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All we can say is, well, the sun came out yesterday. But the fact that it came out yesterday doesn't tell us it's going to happen again tomorrow. But from a biblical perspective, yeah, it will. Because God set it in place to do that very thing. And he's making sure it is doing that, <clears throat> that very thing. A third truth. So we consider not just the, the, these days of creation, but even thinking about vegetation and, and the seas and things. Think about the world that God has made and consider his, his love and goodness for us. <coughs> that, that the world is filled with beauty. God could have made everything monochromatic. Everything could just be black and white, right? There's all these brilliant colors. God could have made it so that plants and, and animals tasted just like a bland mush. But he didn't. He gave us all these different spices and flavors and tastes. He gave us fragrances and smells. He gave us all these different variety that we see. Now think about you know, the, 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 the creatures of the sea we've been talking about. I, mean, I love going to aquariums because it's just incredible. The way the fish move, the beauty of it, it's, it's, it's amazing. And our God gave, this things, gave these things to us out of his love and goodness. 
as well, we see that God is omnipresent. You know, I, I kind of passed over it. If you go back to verse uh, 15, sorry, verse uh, 16. At the very end of the verse, he made the stars also. Seems like a throwaway line, right? And yet, there's so many stars. And they are, distance-wise, billions of light years away. How could God make them? And the answer is, because God's not bound by any location. Jeremiah 22, 24, do not I fill heaven and earth? He can make the stars because he's greater than the stars. And our God is all wise and all knowing. You realize for the whole history of mankind, we never even got outside of the earth until last century. And it took a whole host of money invested and really smart people doing years of research to be able to get from the earth to the moon. And we thought, what a crowning achievement. And if you look at the size of the universe, we wouldn't have even moved. The space between here and the moon is nothing. Why would we think we're great? Certainly we said we'd say, we have no wisdom. We have no knowledge. The greatest of our knowledge can barely get us to the moon. God created the stars. Which is why God as creator of all is unlike any other creature. Isaiah 40 verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Raise your eye on, eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who brings out their multitude by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And so we should, in response, give thanks to our God. Psalm 136, verse 1 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his faithfulness is everlasting. And then you come down to verse 7, To him who made the great lights, for his faithfulness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his faithfulness is everlasting. And the moon and stars to rule by night, for his faithfulness is everlasting. They come out. They continue to govern day and night. They continue to give light. They continue to serve as signs and seasons because God's faithfulness is everlasting. And so let us give thanks to our Lord.